0: A very good morning to you all on this, the 28th of August, whether it's a bank holiday for you this weekend or not, most of us are probably working. Uh, it is good to see you all this morning, and uh, let's come together as we want to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, Duncan is preaching um, and continuing his series uh, in Ecclesiastes this morning, and he's reached that wonderful topic of money. Um, and uh, his, his sermon this morning is entitled, Money Matters more than it probably should and if that hasn't intrigued you already then um, um, then please uh, listen carefully and we'll, we'll see what he has to say. <laughs> but uh, let's first of all uh, turn to God's Word and to the verses that he'll be preaching from in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, it's in your diary um, if you've got that or if you wish to read along in your own Bible or device or phone or whatever, that's quite okay. Um, We're using the ESV this morning in particular, um, and I'm sure Duncan will reveal why later on, but uh, let's read together. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, picking up at verse 8. If you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated lands. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who, they, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. "'whether he eats little or much, "'but the stomach, but the full stomach of the rich "'will not let him sleep. "'There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. "'Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, "'and those riches were lost in a bad venture. "'And he is father of a son, but he is nothing in his hand. "'As he came from his mother's womb, "'he shall go again, naked as he came.' And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. There is also a gr- this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun a few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And then on to chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good do not all go to the one place all the toil of man is for his mouth yet his appetite is not satisfied for what advantage has the wise man over the fool and what does the poor man and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what he will be after him under the sun. Thanks be to God for these words, strange and perplexing though they may seem on first reading.
1: Well, let me encourage you to turn back to those verses that Nigel read for us. I think you will find it helpful to have them in front of you if you can. As Nigel said, they are printed in the diary that was on offer on the way in. Um, Or if you'd like someone to bring you a Bible, just you slip up a hand and someone will do that for you. It's been a wee while since we've looked at this book of Ecclesiastes and it's probably helpful for me to uh, give a quick overview of what we've, we've covered, um, especially if you've not been here for, for, for some of those messages. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is an old book, maybe three and a half, maybe three thousand years old. Um, it's the account of one man's quest to find the meaning of life, the writer of this book, he likes to be known as the preacher. And his conclusion about life is that it's vanity or it's, it's meaningless. And each week of this series, we've reminded ourselves of what he means when he says that. He doesn't mean that life is, is literally without meaning. That word, it, it literally means vapor. You know, so what he's saying is that life is a vapor. It's here for a short time, there's nothing you can do to grasp hold of it, and when it's gone, it disappears without a trace. That's what your life is like. And he's tried everything imaginable to try and make life something other than that vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. He tried education Every conceivable pleasure laughter, wine, servants, singers, sex, constructing buildings to try and create a legacy, accumulating money and wealth. And he says that he he was so invested in those things that he became great. He surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. And though he did find some pleasure in those things, when he stepped back and he looked at his life and all the effort that he put in, He said this, Behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained. The vapor was here for a short while, and then it was gone. The preacher has shown us also that the times and seasons of life are not in our hands. They're not under our control. And one of the biggest mistakes human beings make is that we pretend as if they are in our control. We fight against the limits that God has placed on life. And the preacher, he urges us to receive the things that we have in life as a gift from God. Don't receive them as a tool to try and make life into something it could never be. No, receive them as God's gift. He's shown us that one of the barriers to achieving that is what lies in the human hearts. Envy of others. In fact, Ecclesiastes says that this is what lies at the root of oppression in our world envious hearts that lead people to live isolated lives, not meaning that people don't have friends, but that people live lives only concerned for themselves, not generous towards others. No, it's far better, says the preacher, to live in community. Be generous with what God has given you. And we're going to see a bit more on that theme today. And today's theme is one that has always been with us, but it's very much at the forefront of life in Britain today, isn't it? Um, Inflation is forecast to climb 16, 18%. Maybe. I mean, you came here to get away from all this stuff, I know, but uh, Uh, The cost of heating your home might rise to more than 6,000 pounds a year. I mean, it's eye-watering. And as prices rise, salaries remain the same, people are feeling the pinch. And so numerous professions, they're out on strike. So it is fair to say that money matters. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes knows that very well. But he is attuned to, of what an unhealthy relationship with money can do to us and what it does to a society. So in these couple of chapters we're looking at today, he tells us that money matters more than it probably should. And he starts at that level of society. Um, It's a theme we've already seen in this book if you've been following with us. Verse 8, he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. I suppose one of the tests of a book that was written 3,000 years ago is how well it stands up to the passing of time. I think it stands up pretty well. I mean, corruption, oppression of the poor plays out in every nation on earth. And corruption appears in almost any human system that we devise for running a country, for governing a people. One person bends the rules because they feel the pressure from someone above them. And Ecclesiastes can see that this is, this, this is just naturally how things tend to go. He says, don't be amazed that you see oppression, because, still verse 8, the high official is watched by a higher official, and there are yet higher officials over them. And sometimes if you're ever privileged enough to hear a discussion on economics, um, we hear people talk about the trickle-down effect. You ever heard people talk about that? And the theory is that if the people at the top get wealthier, then some of that wealth trickles down to make even the poorest people wealthier, you see? Here, the preacher says, the natural inclination for human systems is for money to climb up, not to trickle down. Human beings will make it climb up. They're always concerned about pleasing the one who's over them. It's always for their good, for their good. And so, it's natural for the poor to be oppressed and for what is just and right to be violated. And the reason for that is what we see in verse 10. Because he who loves money will not be satisfied. We're being shown here that the love of money is the root of all kinds of vanity. The love of money is the root of all kinds of vanity. It creates a voracious appetite that it can never fill. And so it drives oppression in a society and it leads to a dissatisfied life. Now, I'm, I, I, I know money is a tricky subject. Uh, we, we start talking about it, we get defensive, embarrassed, but we must not let that hinder us here. This is too important. I mean, countries go to war over money. People get murdered every week for money. People will throw away their marriage and their children, and even part with their internal organs for money. Money takes hold of the human heart like nothing else. And Ecclesiastes has has observed the sort sort of vanity, the sort of emptiness that it produces in a life. And here, straight away, he picks out three things for us. First of all, he says, money, when it is loved, never satisfies you're never satisfied with what you have. That's what he says in verse 10. Um, he says it in a couple of ways, doesn't he? If you love money, you're not satisfied with money. If you love wealth, your income is never enough. Even if you get what you think you need, even if you get what you think you deserve, you will not be satisfied with it. Loving money is like keeping a baby lion in the utility room keeps on wanting more and more and you have to feed it more and more and then eventually it will devour you. Second thing he shows us is that loving money is is vanity because the more you have then the more others will come and take it from you. Uh, I can remember as a kid, I, I feel like this is not so common now but maybe you can correct me, I feel like as a kid when folks were asked about the pros and cons of the monarchy it was not uncommon for people to say, uh, I, don't, I don't mind the royal family. It's all the hangers-on I can't be doing with. Do people still say that? Well, I'm sure the hangers-on are still there. They're probably just glad we're not talking about them so much. This is what the preacher's saying. Uh, this is why loving money is such, a, a, such a, a disastrous thing for us, because actually the more you accumulate, well, the more the hangers-on come and will just take it from you. you you never get to where you're going that's what money is like and then third he says the love of money will steal your peace in verse 12 you're presented with this contrast there's the laborer i.e not the landowner the laborer who sleeps like a baby whether he's eaten well or whether he's not just the simplicity and the satisfaction that he has in what he does and in what he has means that he is a man at peace he sleeps at night But the rich, what does he say about the rich? He says, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. No one has excess stomach acid quite like someone who's obsessed with money. And the preacher, he brings this theory that he's presented to us, he brings it to life. And he does that with a case study. In verses, from verse 13, he tells us the tale of the tragic hoarder. The tale of the tragic hoarder. This is the person who in verse 13 kept their riches, lived the isolated life, hoarded their money, and it was to their own hurt, he says. Well, how so? Because, verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. In his desire to accumulate wealth, the tragic hoarder lost it all the one who loves money is very much more open to being scammed out of their money, because often they can only see what profit they might make. That crowds out the loss that they could suffer. And so this is a tragic story. He's a tragic hoarder, not just because he loses his wealth, but because now he has nothing left in his hands to hand to his son. For all of the man's Daily grind. I mean, look at how this is described in verses 16 and 17. All that toiling, all that eating in darkness, all that vexation in sickness and anger, and what progress has he made? Ecclesiastes says, a man like that has not advanced beyond the day he was born. See that in verse 15? As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. He was born with nothing, and he's had all of this striving, all of this toiling to try and make something out of life, and at the end of it all, he's made no progress. As naked as he came in, he'll go out of this world. I mean, each of us will die. This is Ecclesiastes' biggest message to us. We are all going to die And we will leave our toil and our achievements behind us. And so if we're like the tragic hoarder, all that hoarding, all that avarice will gain you nothing. It is, as the preacher says twice about this man, it's a grievous evil. But this is the sum that plays out in all of our lives. To simply live, to try and accumulate things, is to live the vain life, the empty, meaningless life, because nothing that you accumulate will come with you at the end of life. In fact, all that you've accumulated will have to be enjoyed by someone else who didn't work for it. Accumulating stuff, even money, is not the way to find security in life. The tragic hoarder shows us that, No, you're going to need something better, something of eternal value. Jesus gave the same warning in Matthew 6 when he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't be a hoarder of things. Why? Well, because on earth moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Instead, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, I guess it is the case, isn't it? You can live for money, So long as you understand that you will lose it and you will have nothing to show for your life of toil. Or you can use what God has given you for a bigger purpose, an eternal purpose, even for an eternal reward. You see, the human love for money is really only a symptom of the human heart. We were made for God, made to know God, made to worship God, and to delight in Him. The human heart tries to delight in other things, some of those things that we said the preacher had experimented with, but they never satisfy. They are a miserable substitute for God's so we burn ourselves out chasing after those things and especially here in chapter 5 chasing after money and we get to the end of our lives and we never did find what we thought we were aiming for the Holy Spirit through this preacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us today to stop and see that this is our condition but to see that things can be different Nigel alluded earlier to the fact that Ecclesiastes is often a difficult read and it's difficult for us because it's an uncomfortable read a lot of the time I mean chapter after chapter he keeps telling us that we're going to die that's uncomfortable but the preacher in Ecclesiastes has a positive message his main message is a positive one that runs all the way through this book and here it comes to the fore verse 18 to the end of chapter 5, he tells us that wealth and joy can coexist. It doesn't have to be the case that we, the choice is a tragic hoarder or nothing. He says wealth and joy can live together. And I think this is an important perspective. The, the preacher is not down on wealth per se, He's not down on accumulating things per se, but he is down on loving and worshiping wealth and stuff, for they are, as I said, miserable substitutes for God. So Ecclesiastes has not only seen the grievous evil of the tragic hoarder, he has seen instead, you see in verse 18, what is good and fitting. And another way you could translate that is good and beautiful. And it is to accept God's gifts to us. So look at how many times he refers to that in just these three verses. Verse 18, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. You see that? Here's the different perspective. This life that I have, as short as it is, the food and the drink that I eat and drink, the, the, the work that I toil with, they are gifts from God. God has given them to me. He says, life, every day of it, is a gift from God. Verse 19, what else is is good and beautiful? He says, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Not just the material things, but the capacity, the power to find joy in the things God has given and you keep going there in in verse 19 and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is what the gift of god this is the perspective ecclesiastes sees is good and beautiful it is the key that unlocks the door into understanding how to live life well it's understanding that everything we have is a gift from god to be enjoyed as from God. And the way we enjoy it is to receive it from God's hand. It is to use it in a way that honors God, recognizes God as the giver of the gift. Now, this is actually a radical message. It doesn't feel radical, but it is. He's saying true joy is not found in a, being the one in a million, in, in accomplishing the one in a million task. It's not found in accumulating the most stuff. It's not found in completing your bucket list of life. It is not found in having some kind of legacy that you can leave behind you. He says, you will not be satisfied if you think that's what your life is for. No, here's what it's for use what God has given you. Not to make life into something other than a short-lived vapor, but instead embrace it. Embrace that life is short. Eating, drinking, working, even having material things can be the real joys of life. Not gateways into something else, but like here and now, in the present, joy before God's Happy times are those times that do seem to pass quickly, don't they? Endless weeks in lockdown, less so. Joyful times, doing the things that bring pleasure, they pass so quickly. And this is the kind of language of verse 20 there. The one who understands this will not much remember the days of his life because God God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We're not not trudging through life, but actually the joy of living, those days have flown by, knowing the joy of having received these remarkable gifts from God and enjoying them as such. The alternative to this is hideous, and uh, the preacher is trying to help us here by introducing us to another case study. This time he tells us the tale of the rich but joyless. This is the tale of a man who had everything. This is into chapter 6, verse 2. What did he have? Wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy those things. Maybe it will help you to have that, that same story told with a bit more flesh on it because Jesus tells this story as well. In Luke chapter 12 he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, and is not rich towards God. Full of wealth, plans to get even richer, so that at some point in the future he may get to the place of satisfaction. You see, he's not satisfied now. There's no joy in what he has now, but he can imagine if he uses what he has now, he could one day get to a place of satisfaction. God calls him a fool, for he had the gifts from God, but he had not learned how to find true joy in them. And this is what Ecclesiastes teaches us here. He says, imagine that such a man had everything you could ever wish for. Verse 3, let's say he had a hundred children and he lived a long life. How long? Well, look at verse 6. Let's say he lived a thousand years, twice over, but he never found satisfaction in life. His isolated life comes to an end and he has no burial, it says in verse 3, which is a way of saying there was no one to miss him. The preacher says that he cannot think of a more tragic thing and he gets that across to us powerfully and I think some of us may have winced when verse 3 was read because the preacher says of such a man, a stillborn child is better off than the rich but joyless. How can he say such a thing? I doubt we can imagine a more tragic situation. There will be some here who have known this very personally, I'm sure. A couple filled with the excitement of a new baby on the way charting the progress as it goes this week it's the size of a kiwi this week it's the size of a pepper and then the kicking starts this little bundle in its mummy's tummy is bursting with potential and the parents can't help wonder can they they can't help it what color will its hair be What kind of things will it like? What will they be good at? How will they get on with their siblings? And then inexplicably, it all goes quiet. Hopeful joy is turned into deep mourning as a mother has to be delivered of a lifeless baby. All that potential now gone Only heartbreak left behind. What could possibly be worse than that? I don't think the preacher casually says this to us. He says, hold in your mind how tragic that is. Remember the tears that that brings to your eyes to think of it. And he says, now listen to me, there is something even more tragic than that. Someone who wastes their life. That's what he's saying. The one who had life, who had the good things of life and lived it in dissatisfied misery, not knowing the gift of God, and they die missed by no one because they lived this selfish hoarding life. Well, why is that more tragic? Well, the writer here says, even though the precious little one that died lived its short life in the dark, unseen, well, praise God for this, it finds rest. But the rich but joyless never find rest. The lover of money is destined to be restless forever. These words are meant to shake us. There is nothing more tragic than a life lived for money. Because it's a wasted life. So I suppose we take these things together and we ask, well, how do I know if I love money? Seems one of the themes that is so common in these verses is discontentment. In verse 8 of chapter 6, the preacher asks, what advantage does the poor man who is wise have over the rich man who is a fool? Here's, what, here's the advantage. The wise one is content with what he has. See how he speaks about um, verse nine, the sight of the eyes. That is the things that are in front of him, the things he can see, he can see. The wise one is content with what he can see in front of him, with what he has, whereas the fool has a wandering appetite, always pursuing what he doesn't yet have. They always have to have that car, that holiday, that house, that thing that will get them some approval from the crowd. This is not the wise life. This is the tragically wasted life. And this is the life, I am sad to say, that many Christians are living. God is speaking to us by his word. And if that's you or me that is being described on the pages of this chapter, then God says it would have been less tragic if you'd never been born, if that's how you're going to live your life. That's devastating, isn't it? That should make us sit up. But the wonderful thing about the Bible's message is that it, it's never pessimistic or negative or harsh for the sake of being those things. It is always so that we might find the hope that is given to us in Scripture. And this section concludes with a plea. The plea is accept reality as it is before it's too late. He says in verse 10, "Whatever has come to be has already been named." In other words, God has created the world as it is. All the things that are in the world, he has designed, he has placed where they are, he has named them. He's determined what function they will serve. He's decided what their limits will be. And included in that as human beings, man The Hebrew word for man is the word Adam. And it comes from the related word Adama, which means dust. We've been named and we are dust. We are creatures. There is no point in us trying to be God, pretending to be God, acting as if we are a God. We are creatures So we don't get to live independently of God. That's not how we were designed to be. We don't get to know better than God. And so those questions that he ends with, who knows what is good for a man while he lives? Who can tell what will be after him under the sun? The answer is not us, only God, only God, only the one who created us and is over us. And the preacher is pleading that we would know God. In verse 9 of chapter 5, I think we get a glimpse of how. The preacher had spoken about the oppression in the world and how oppressing the poor seems to be more concerned with feeding and making wealthy those who are above And it's as if the preacher yearns for the opposite. Verse 9, he says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He yearns for a king, a king who would be a breath of fresh air, whose priority would be to see fields that are cultivated, to see his people provided for one who looks to provide for the lowest rather than be concerned for those who are above. That longing in Israel um, was to point them to their true king who would come, the promised Messiah. And we have that same longing too. If we are to live a worthwhile life, it will only be as we receive it as the gift of God. If we are to know God and to delight in Him, it will only be because God has gifted that to us. And He has provided King Jesus, the one who sees us in all of our spiritual poverty and provides us with all of His spiritual riches, all of His right standing with God, He gives to those who believe in Him. And here's the remarkable economics of what God has done. He takes my poverty as his own. And he suffers and dies on the cross to deal with it forever. And now, for all who believe in Jesus Christ, life has found its purpose. It seems to us a new purpose, but actually, it's the reason why we were made in the first place. To know God to worship God, to delight in God. And in doing so, we find true joy here, now, and treasure stored up in heaven for eternity. This is why Christians are able to give away what they have and not be the tragic hoarder who no one will miss. Rather than hoarding, they're willing to support missions local and global they support ministries in their local church they help a church member in need and they help fund people to train for ministry this this is uh, on the face of it just making themselves poorer right wrong this is where joy in possessions is found this is to store up wealth in heaven because these things are done as a response to what Jesus has first done for us and suppose I simply want to ask today, do you know the gift giver? Do you love him more than the gifts that he's given? Today is the feast day of St. Augustine. I don't keep that in my mind. I just happened to stumble across that this week. Today is the feast day of St. Augustine. He famously wrote these words in prayer. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Pursuing anything else is the restless life. Come to Christ. Find rest. Find joy.